0: Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, uh, an attorney and partner at the Real Estate Practice Group of Ice Miller. Today, we have two great guests and a super interesting company. We're talking to Verano Holdings today, and we have two people I've known for a very long time. This podcast is uh, years in the making. We have Chris Vitopoulos. He's the chief legal officer and executive vice president of legal and real estate at Verano Holdings. And we have Sam Harmelik is a commercial real estate attorney who is the vice president of real estate and associate general counsel at Verano. Chris, Sam, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Bill.
1: Good to see you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, so this is really fun and exciting for me because I've known both of you professionally for years uh, through other means. And then you've both joined verano holdings which is a a cannabis company and i'll let you speak a little bit about it in just a second but it's just really interesting to me that you both left um, other very successful positions uh, to join this growing company in in a thriving new industry so uh, i'd love to hear about that you know chris uh, why don't you start us off tell us a little bit about your time at verano how you got here and what the company's all about thanks phil so my time started back in two thousand
1: and five when I was uh, a newly minted attorney licensed in Illinois. I was uh, working at a couple different firms, mainly uh, focusing in on uh, commercial real estate transactions and then other various aspects of, of business. And I used to represent a couple different uh, uh, local individuals who were who were pretty, um, you know, sophisticated in their business dealings. And the way I came to, to Verano was in 2012, I represented a, uh, an acquisition that was done in Oregon uh, for a cultivation center. And because of my uh, unique willingness at the time to, to represent a cannabis company, I got the notoriety in, um, in Illinois You know that I know cannabis uh, dealings, especially as it relates to, to real estate. So in 2015, when, or actually in 2014, when the state of Illinois was talking about putting together a, a cannabis program, a couple of people that I knew then that I had represented professionally approached me and said that if I, my thoughts about like what the program would look like and if I'd be interested in, in participating with them, which I was, and I helped write the initial application for what serves as the basis for the Illinois Cultivation Center um, and the the first license of, of what eventually became, um, Verano. So from 2000, uh, at that point, uh, from 2015 until 2018, I acted as a de facto general counsel for, the precursor of Verano. And then in 2018, when, when Verano was formed, I moved over and into the in-house uh, position. And currently my title is like you said, executive vice president of uh legal real estate and risk so I handle I wear many hats uh, in, in
0: my in my current position awesome and then say tell us a little just for those that don't know about Verano just as a company just as a little overview of where you are today so we've come a
1: long way since 2015 when we when we won our first license so uh, back then it was uh, the wild wild west for us we were just a a singular license but soon after that we started um, acquiring um, other companies in in other states and winning licenses in in some of these other states that were that were coming online like uh, the state of illinois so so today we're we operate six brands where we operate 120 uh retail dispensaries uh we're in 13 states and we have 14 cultivation centers so we have over 4,000 employees and we just continue to, to expand our footprint in the states that we're currently operating. And even in the states that uh, that are coming online, we'd like
0: to win additional licenses and, and set a foothold in those states as well. Unbelievable. So from first cultivation center license application to uh, over 120 or 112 locations uh, in many different states, it's, it's an unbelievable growth story.
2: Yeah,
1: it's uh, it's it's unbelievable, and I'm fortunate enough to to have been uh you know a part of it. And it's it's very fascinating to see where where the next you know five years w- will take us. Yeah,
0: the growth story was a no pun intended. We'll try to not get too too into <laughs> the puns. I'm sure you guys hear them all the time, uh, which is why we love using them all the time <laughs> as well. So don't worry. All right, cool. So, yeah, Cr- Chris's favorite line is "We're growing like a weed." Yeah. So. I mean, it's it it's true. So which, you know, with that growth story, you need help, you need to bring on Sam, came over from one of the biggest law firms in the world to, uh, to join this company. So Sam, tell us a little about your journey. Yeah, I was. I went to U of I
2: like you did, of course, both ATOs, shout out to the Taws listening. Always wanted to get into commercial real estate, went to law school at DePaul, went to Hilco Real Estate, went to Scion Group, came back to traditional law, situation at Denton's where I was representing, you know, some of the biggest developers in the city, landlords, lenders, and Denton's happens to have the largest cannabis practice in the country. And I was talking with the the head of the cannabis group over there, Eric Berlin. He said he has all these clients that are buying and leasing property to run their business and he needs help. And, you know, I was happy to take on those assignments, started representing some of the largest MSOs like GTI, Ascend, Verano, and then some of the smaller local players and some smaller players in California. And I was really starting to enjoy that work. It ended up becoming probably about 50% of my practice over at Denton's. And when I was working with Verano, I found out they had a need because it was about you know mid-2021 after they had just done about 15 M&A deals with 15 more in the pipeline. And, um, you know, I was talking with Chris and as Chris said, he wears so many hats around here, real estate just being one of the many. And, you know, when the real estate portfolio goes from, you know, 20 dispensaries and three cultivation facilities to hundred dispensaries and 14 cultivation facilities with more to add, he just knew that a body had needed help on the legal side for real estate, the op side. And because I had been at Scion Group helping to operate there, I'd been at Denton doing real estate transactions. He felt that, uh, my experience in real estate could be a big value add and here i am 14 months later and it has been an absolute whirlwind i mean when i started i think we were at 80 dispensaries like chris said we're at 120 now with you know 20 more in the pipeline and just things are things are going crazy over here yeah so it's been a it's been a fun ride and it's been a cool transition going from a white shoe largest international law firm in the world to uh, essentially a legal business, right? Where you're, you're playing in a gray area. So it's been a, a cool, cool transition experience for me.
1: So Phil, let me, let, let me just add to what, what Sam was saying because uh, Sam kind of just brushes over the whole, uh, you know, how he, how he came over. So um, I remember like we were working on a transaction and I was just, uh, you know, very impressed with everything that that Sam was doing on the real estate side. And as soon as he we put up that post and, and he threw his hat in the ring and I had the conversation with him. I knew that that, you know, I wanted, uh, you know, Sam to be on our team because, uh, you know, he provides a lot of, um, you know, sophistication, a lot of uh, great experience that that I was looking for uh, to build on our uh, on our real estate team. So, you know, I, I always want to tell Sam. Sam that, but here we are, Sam, on a, on a very large platform, and I'm expressing my <laughs> appreciation for, for you.
2: I appreciate you bringing me on. I appreciate you
0: bringing <laughs> on. Thank you. Well, yeah, you know, Sam is always going to bring a lot of energy. He's going to bring a lot of volume to those emails. And uh, he's going to come. <laughs> he's a prolific writer. And, um, you know, he's going to bring a lot of sophistication and knowledge to, to the transaction. And also probably... A, takes a great deal of responsibility, which for for matters, which I'm sure is super helpful to you, Chris. You know, like I'm pretty interested right now. My wife just became the general counsel of a company. And it's kind of interesting for me to just watch her transition from being in a in-house role where client comes to you with an issue or a transaction or problem. And then you're tasked to to resolve that issue or provide guidance for that issue. But for you, Chris, like it's just kind of interesting to see the transition where it's like I have a company that I am in charge of their legal needs, and I have to figure out how to do that, whether it's hire outside counsel or build a team, because you like just don't have the bandwidth to do everything, especially for a company growing as quickly as as Verano has. So you know, tell us a little bit about just sort of your philosophy of running the in-house team and just how you're trying to build a team and, and use outside counsel and, and how you are managing all of the different areas of, of risk and transactions and things that you need to oversee
1: so I, I will say this and I need to clarify that initially I was the chief legal officer and then I transitioned into into the executive vice president uh, position so so currently there is a, a another uh, general counsel who is uh, who's Darren Weiss who's also been with the with verano for for a very long time since 2000 and um i want to say 16 where he represented the seller of an acquisition that we had made so he he came into the into the fold um very separately uh in a different route but um so you know he's he's in he's in maryland i'm here in uh in in illinois so there's definitely you know the 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 need to build out the um the legal team here in Illinois, where our current, um, uh, you know, headquarters is, but it's it's very important to build out a team um, with with you know top notch talent like uh, like I was saying about Sam and and we have to you know bring on the people who are uh, top notch in uh, in the securities and the corporate um, arena, labor and employment arena, uh, and you know the the thing is it's just very very difficult because we're expanding at such a rapid rate that it's hard to juggle all of those by yourself but collectively i think the team does a phenomenal job for for the limited resources that we do have in handling the you know the complex issues on a on a day-to-day basis so so i credit putting in the 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 right people with the right skill set to handle these issues is 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 key to any kind of success especially as as a company like ours continues to grow
0: yeah so how are you know what is next in terms of growing sam you mentioned that you have you know more locations being added how is Verado growing right now are you guys looking to lease property to add locations are you developing new cultivation centers or dispensaries are you still doing m&a deals you know like what's what's 2023 look like for you yeah, good question. So, you know,
2: 2021 was the year of M&A, right, especially in cannabis, the valuations were through the roof, as was the rest of the market. And, you know, I'm sure everyone's seen the stock prices. But when our stock price was high, right, it was it was ripe to do a ton of all stock M&A deals. We gobbled up a lot of companies we were able to expand that way. You know, in 2023, with where the stock price is, with where rates are, we have to be really strategic. And so due to how regulated canvases and how limited licenses are, you can really only grow where you have licenses. So in Florida, you can open up as many dispensers as you want with the one license. And so we're always targeting new stores to open in Florida. The plan is to get as large of a footprint in Florida as you can. We're open to leasing or buying stores. It's more about, is this the city we want to be in? Is this the corner we want to be in? And it's it's less about we only lease or we only buy. It's whatever makes sense. And then there's a few other states where we still have licenses to place. So Connecticut, for example, we have a few licenses to place. And so we're looking for sites out there um, in a few other states. But otherwise, you know, you're kind of limited in expansion in cannabis because you're limited by the licenses. And then on top of it, doing a real estate deal in cannabis is unlike any other deal, because not only you're just trying to negotiate the terms of a deal, you have to understand, is there a lender on the property? If there is, are they even going to allow you to go there? Right? Um, Does this town even allow cannabis to be there? If the town does allow you to be there, can you go anywhere? Can you only go in one patch of land? So it's just the hurdles about expanding in this industry are just second to none in any other industry I've been at. Right? If you're Starbucks, everyone wants you to be their tenant. If you're cannabis, you sometimes can't even go in 99% of the towns, let alone the towns you can go into, you can only go in like five percent of the town, so it's it makes it a little harder. But we're definitely looking to expand organically right now through winning more licenses, through placing licenses we have. Um, I think we're always open to doing more M and A, but it's going to be a little slower in twenty twenty three compared to the twenty twenty one run.
1: And just to build off of what was Sam, what Sam was uh, was saying, the, the the real estate market has just completely uh, changed from two thousand and fifteen when we initially came on the scene. Like dispensaries back then were, were relegated to like, you know, industrial um, zones in in a city. So they were not very, you know, attractive locations. They were off the beaten path, you know, the, the locations the municipalities, they wanted to keep us, you know, as far away from Maine and Maine as possible. But as things, you know, started to open up and, and the perception and the approval rating of the, the, the general public, you know, began to shift you've also seen the real estate uh, locations change as well. So now we're looking for uh, placing properties more on, you know, traditional real estate locations for retail, which is on, you know, main and main street. So some of the stuff that we're looking at internally is, you know, moving some of those, uh, you know, phase one kind of stores where they're in the industrial locations, more main and main street. But to Sam's point, I mean, you know, dealing, trying to move them, on top of dealing with all of the uh, the hurdles that Sam was just uh, talking about, just makes it for a very difficult uh, industry to deal with.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. So, you know, if you're Starbucks, you can just kind of look at the United States and or the world and just try to place what where it makes sense for you. But you have this ever changing landscape where you're super restricted. At the same time, you also probably have to check back in on locations because things are always changing. So what might be a site that might not have been available to you in 2021 might be available to you in 2023 as states open up, as local restrictions open up. It's like you um, can't ever cross any area off the list. You have to, like, check back on it every year. And then I imagine when states do open up, it's like a little bit of a gold rush or competition between various companies to get the best locations as states open up. Definitely. I mean, you, you don't have to look any further than than the great city of,
1: of Chicago to see to see that unfold, right? I mean, back in 2016, 17, when everybody was trying to identify where where these 55 licenses were going to open up and we were limited, like everybody wanted to, to, to get the, the, the plus one licenses that came out um, in the second wave. They wanted to put them in you know, on, on Michigan Avenue, but unfortunately, you know, that was, that area was, was blocked out. And, and even some streets like state Street, like those, that, that whole zone was, was blocked out, but now it's changing. Right. So Cause I mean, you, you read in the newspaper that, that some of these new social equity licenses are trying to open up on um, not too far from, from state street and, and Michigan Avenue. And you have a uh, three or four already that are open on, on, uh, you know, is it ohio and then there's another one on dearborn and uh and ontario so so it's it's
0: fascinating yeah totally well let's talk a little bit about the state of the regulatory environment you know sam alluded to it being an illegal business um uh, i'm sure the risk management department set off bells and sam said that and because uh it is legal by state in certain areas you know i just I remember 2015 to 2018 when the states were opening up, and you'd see like a 60 minute story about it being an all cash business and how cash had to be moved, and how, you know, security was paying for security was a huge deal with these industries. You know, tell us a little bit about just kind of where you are in terms of the regulatory environment, in terms of how lenders are looking at investing in these companies or loaning on property? Because I have found personally, having done a little bit of real estate transactions in this area, that some banks won't lend on this. Some title companies won't provide title insurance if there's a cannabis use, but some will. So, you know, tell us a little about it. And I don't have a great rhyme or reason for it. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what your, your experience.
2: You know, like you said, it's, it's obviously illegal at the federal level. It's semi-legal in varying degrees at about 37 states right now, you know, some are medical only, some are rec, some are uh, research only. So like you said, to get lending is very difficult, right? The, The big banks, the chases, the cities, the wells, they absolutely will not touch it. Credit unions that are in a state where it's legal, they're all about it. State chartered banks, some of them, in states where it's legal will take the position that because they're state chartered and they're in the state that's legal they'll do it others will take the point that they just only want to touch until it's federally legal and then you have private debt funds that are specifically raising money to lend in the space to help you bank and so it's just all over the board people almost pick and choose what regulations they want to follow seem to be legal seem to not be legal Everything's kind of a gray area because of the federal and state conflicts right and because of the the state chartered banks the federally chartered banks so we have had success with some regional and state banks to take our deposit accounts to lend on our real estate properties but there's some banks that we're, we'll be happy to take our deposit accounts but won't lend to us there's others that will be happy to lend to us but won't say take deposits it's It's almost comical at this point, you know, We Chris and I have been, because we have such a large own portfolio of our 100 and, you know, almost 40 properties, we do own 40 of them. And so we're always looking to put debt on them to help pull out cash and fund the business that way strategically. And it's, we're probably talking to 50 or 60 lenders right now, some banks, some private debt funds. And it's just funny how each one takes a different position of where they will lend how they'll take deposit accounts this then the other and then to your point it is a cash business we have had success with allowing people to pay through debit cards the last few weeks the what's known as the cashless atm was just um kind of shut down nationwide which has thrown a wrench in in that so it's back to mostly being a cash business with which causes headaches obviously trying to get cash from the dispensary to the to the banks where we do have deposit accounts. you know, I'm sure everyone's read the articles about the, the Washington robberies and why that's such a big push for SAFE to come into play to make it a safer way to operate your business. Because obviously having millions of dollars in cash go through your door is risky for those employees at the dispensaries, right? And Chris has obviously been here much longer. I've, I've had the luxury of dealing with banks. I mean, Chris started when, you know, I don't want to speak, I don't know, suitcases and duffel bags, right?
1: <laughs> Sam I'm not that old uh, contrary to, to all the white uh, you know facial hair that you see on my face but, uh, <laughs> no, but
2: 2015, it was it was tough to even find someone to to bank with it, it was very it was very
1: difficult but we were we were definitely fortunate as one of the the few operators that had you know pre-existing banking relationships in the state of Illinois that and we were able to have to have banks at that point but I wanted to touch on on something that Phil said back in two thousand and fourteen with the um, like. I remember when I was representing that, that uh, group out in in Oregon in their acquisition. I remember receiving a notice from the American Bar Association uh, reminding me that cannabis is federally illegal and that there's always a possibility that I could lose my uh, lose my license. So so I remember having this uh, this this like you know moment where i was completely scared was i going to lose my my livelihood what what's going to happen but cooler heads i guess prevailed and
0: (laughs) yeah no thanks for um for sharing that I, i could totally see them hey be careful but not not actually following through and you should find that and frame it hang it so that when you successfully retire uh having established you know, having blazed the trail, uh, so to speak, for for this industry. Um, it'll be really cool to see. Because, I mean, playing this out, I mean, what do you guys hear at the right? Do you guys have um, lobbyists? Like, what do you guys hear changing the federal level? At least, you know, you, I think my understanding, and I should have looked this up so I can speak more eloquently on it. But, you know, you, you can either legalize it at the federal level or at least change the schedule of, of what Cause it's currently in the same schedule as well, what I think of as like crazy hard drugs, like heroin and stuff. It's like on the same schedule. So that it wouldn't even be medically allowed. But I, my rudimentary understanding is that if they're at least change what schedule of drug it would be, then it would allow States to make it like fully, truly legal without having to the brain damage of the conflict of law issue. So, so you're talking about a
1: couple different, uh, issues there, right? Uh, you know, changing it from uh, from a Schedule One narcotic to a Schedule Two just has like different implications. Like, who's going to be responsible? Who's going to oversee the, uh, the the program as a whole? You know, people keep saying, and there's just a lot of speculation, right? People are saying it's going to be the FDA that's going to oversee this. It's going to be the ATF. Like, they, people are just throwing you know things out. But the reality is, we just don't know exactly how that's going to play out. Um, but to Sam's point, when he addressed earlier, Safe Banking Act is probably the the one thing that that get that does pass sooner than, in my opinion, um, changing the schedule. But we don't even know when that's going to happen. People were were attributing a seventy percent success of passage rate uh, in the lame duck session of Safe Banking Act that didn't happen. Um, so there's just constant like uh, you know headwinds on on what happens. But the reality is. The reason why Safe Banking Act becomes so important to pass is the reason that that most of the politicians who are opposed to it really don't understand. And that is the employees of these cannabis companies, including some of ours, cannot get financing to to purchase a home. They constantly get notifications from from their banks that they're, they're being shut down because they're they're getting money from a, from a cannabis company. So these are real issues that our employees are are dealing with on a daily basis. That we're trying to bring to the forefront of these um, senators, so that they can, you know, so that they're armed with all the necessary information, so that w- when they do go talk to their constituents and and you know some of their other their other senators and their colleagues, they can eloquently speak to the fact that we're trying to help the the general public here. Right? It's not just the the, the big bad corporation that wants to uplist from the the Canadian markets to the, to the U S markets. It's, it's those issues that are probably more important than, than uplisting on the, uh, on the U S exchanges.
0: No, that, that makes total sense. And I I hadn't thought of all, all of the way that it affects um, the general public and the, the day-to-day employees that you have. Sam, you also mentioned like a cashless ATM and I didn't, I wasn't tracking what that meant. Um, you can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I Chris might know a little more about it. So I don't know if you've been to a dispensary. You don't have to share, but most dispensaries the past few years have had these debit mach- debit card machines where instead of paying with cash, you can pay with your debit card. You swipe your debit card, and if your total is a hundred and twenty two dollars, they'll round up to one hundred twenty five and give you you know, $3 back. And to the customer, it just feels like you're paying with a debit card and they're giving you some change back. But really what's happening is the debit machine is really just an ATM machine. And so instead of just pulling out $125, it's really giving the dispensary the 125. And so they give you $3 back out of the drawer. There's a lot of literature on it. It, It's questionably legal and there's been rumors for a long time that it'd be shut down. And for whatever reason, at the beginning of December, they finally shut them all down. And and to my understanding, they're not back up and running. And it's just, as you can imagine, just another wrench, another hurdle in the cannabis industry. You know, everyone thinks we're making all this money, but it's just there's hurdles left and right where we just can't operate like a normal business. So one way around it was this cashless ATM. And now they shut down that. So now if you're a customer, you have to bring cash or we do have ATM machines in in the dispensaries. And so you have to pull out cash from the ATM and it's just an extra hurdle that customers have to go through. It's an extra annoyance for them. But so, yeah, that's, that's what that is. It's, it's a, it faces the consumer like a, like you're paying with a debit card, but you're actually just taking ATM withdrawal.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Like you said it's, it, earlier, it's not just an annoyance. It's a safety issue. Both for the the consumers walking around with cash and and of course the companies that have to process all that cash uh just puts a big target target on you
2: yeah you're just a sitting you're sitting duck right people know there's just the consumers are carrying lots of cash the, the the stores has tons of cash it's just not safe for anyone
0: involved we've talked a lot about sort of the nuances of the law but what do you guys find is the most difficult part of the job of, of working at verano is it navigating these regulatory issues? Is it the changing landscape? Is it the the speed and pace of the growth of the company? Because obviously the company's taken off and so any company that grows that much has some growing pains. So what do you guys find is the hardest part?
1: I mean I'm gonna say that it's a it's a combination of all of those, but what what helps Make all of those, uh, even, even more harder, right? Even, even more difficult to, to, to navigate is, is the velocity with which things are, are continuously growing. We're constantly applying for, for new licenses, right? So there's that application. So, you know, you have to worry about the application process. And, and as a company, while we do have 4,000 plus employees, we at the corporate level run very lean. So there are, like a lot of us that wear multiple hats. So we're constantly, you know, doing our day to day. And then we're also doing, you know, some of the other stuff that, that we're all tasked to do with, whether that's like help write applications, help review an insurance applications. I mean, it's just, it's a combination of all of those, but the, the velocity in the industry is, is probably the, the biggest, um, the biggest issue. I, was, I always tell Sam when, when he first started that uh, at the end of year one, he's going to feel like it was like he's been you know with the company for for more than 5 years and it, it ended up for me I was like man Sam congratulations on your like 3rd year here uh glad to have you he's like what well, it's only been a year <laughs> so uh, and for me it feels like it's been like a uh, an entire career in and of itself even though it's only been like 5 short years
0: well yeah i imagine there's never a quiet day there's always the day is always, there's always a million things to do so you, you never have a day where you're like, ah, i left at 1130. There wasn't, I finished all my, all of my work. I bet that just never happened. It's not even something that you consider.
2: Sam, what about you? You know, Chris said, well, I don't want to steal the same answer, but it's, it's just the, the pairing of the, the legality of the business with the, the fact that it's a brand new industry and business, right? I mean, real estate's been around for 500 years. I'm fortunate to only really focus on the real estate here, but even an industry like real estate, which has been around for ages, is still operating in this brand new illegal industry where it's, you're dealing with issues you've never even bumped into. I'm the hundreds of thousands of deals you've come into before. I mean, I'm seeing lease clauses I've never seen before. I'm seeing issues with zoning I've never even thought about or heard about, right? Lender issues. It's so it's just, the dealing with the fact that it's illegal, we're growing so quickly, and it's a new industry where you don't even know what's ahead of you sometimes because no one, literally, no one has done it before. So that's what makes it fun and exciting, but also extremely
0: difficult and frustrating at times. That makes total sense. I bet everyone you deal with has varying levels of sophistication with with the subject matter. So like you might get a lender one day who's like, yeah, I know I got a whole checklist of exactly what we need to do in order to process this loan. Like here's the four additional things that we're going to need. Um, and then you probably have some lenders who are totally green to the situation. And so you have to co- coach them through how to get get everything done. Yeah, the lenders definitely are like that. It's interesting.
2: The, the landlords especially though, because you'll have some landlords who have done, you know, 20 cannabis dispensary deals. They have these, you know, form clauses specifically for cannabis with all these restrictions. And then you have someone who just has this vacant space they haven't leased in five years and they're just desperate to get a tenant. And they're like, yeah, just send me over your form, whatever you want. And it's like, they don't even mark it up. They don't know, they don't even know, they don't even throw any cannabis specific language in there. And so it's it's just funny seeing all the different ways people approach the deals in the space. But that's some of
1: the issues that we run into in the, in the real estate, uh, specifically in the real estate market, right? Where you have like these unsophisticated landlords who are looking and hearing and reading things on the, uh, on the internet about how much uh, money these cannabis companies are making. So they just think that as soon as they land, uh, you know, a cannabis tenant, that they're just going to be able to charge three and four times, you know, market rent and and that the, the cannabis company is just going to be stuck renting that, that space. And, you know, while that was or may have been the case very early on, things are definitely, you know, changing as, as like I, I said earlier, as, as we become more acceptable and we move on to like main and main streets. I know as a company, we really push back against, uh, you know, those types of landlords where we just will not deal with them or we have to pay like three times the amount of, uh, of market rent. Just so we can, you know, be in that specific location. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I remember you guys telling me that we were at dinner uh, at ICSC. They, do, what did you call it though? You called it something like the cannabis tax or something like that. Yeah, the green yeah, tax. Yeah, the green tax. tax. The, the green tax. Think that they can upcharge. I mean, I'm sure that they claim it's due, due to some sort of risk risk profile, but uh I'm sure that you're right that the the farther this goes and the more locations there are, the more companies there are, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats situation where the more accepted the industry is, the more normalized it is and the less you have to deal with that.
1: Well, remember that back in the day, you, you did have like some very high profile cannabis companies that were, were willing to take on that kind of risk where they would rent these marquee locations, even though they didn't have the approval you know, to operate out of, they were, they were locking these properties up. And they were paying astronomical rents just so that they can have that location, assuming that the approval uh, would be received. And a lot of times they got, uh, they were stuck holding the bag, but, you know, those were the issues that obviously led to the, to some of the landlords that I was talking
0: about, uh, you know, today
1: in our current market,
0: For sure. Well, guys, we're, uh, I want to be respectful of your time and I've really enjoyed, uh, all of this conversation, you guys come on the show and sharing all of the different components of your job and, and, and Verano and, and how difficult it is to navigate everything. But, um, any, any big picture things on the horizon for Verano you guys wanted to share? Or you guys got any, I mean, you, I did already ask you about what's in the store for 2023. So I did kind of ask you that question, but I, I'll, I'll add to something.
1: And I know Sam will, uh, will, will agree with me that, uh, uh, no sale leasebacks in 2023 for us as we continue to move around those.
2: Yeah, the sale, sale, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because of the debt situation, a lot of a lot of people in the space like buying their property and then doing sale leasebacks with these debt funds. We've we're one of the only players that aren't doing it just because we find the terms to be egregious and we've been fortunate enough to be able to fund the operation through traditional real estate debt and through the operation itself from free free cash flow. So we're just going to continue going down that. And, you know, anyone listening, we just hope you, you know, obviously your choice to be a consumer, but we just hope you support the industry and try to help us in Congress, wherever you can, you know, cause we should be able to operate like a normal business, just like anyone else.
0: Yeah. No, oh, I love that ending. And, and for those listeners who, you know, a lot of listeners do know what sale leasebacks are because why would you be listen to real estate for breakfast if you weren't a real estate nerd? But, um, you know, it was very popular over the past few years when debt was cheap. Uh, if companies that wanted to unlock some value in their holdings were to sell the real estate that they owned, and then they would agree to sign on for a lease so that those companies could get the cash from, the sale of the underlying real estate, yet keep their existing locations, but, but not Verano, not not going forward. They you guys are going to hold on to that yeah. real estate, not, not even asset. Yep. Yes, sir. It didn't
1: make sense early on, and it still doesn't make sense. You know, from from our perspective, uh, you know, after doing the the math, you basically are are giving back all the money within like seven years. So, you know, what are you going to do with a large cultivation center after the the lease, the fifteen year lease is up? Are you going to move it? It's cost so much money to, to develop that. I mean, it's an impossible, it's an impossibility at that point. So you're likely stuck at that location. So that I'm sure that makes the lender very happy and the owner at that point, but it just didn't make sense from, from our perspective, especially because, you know, we were, we were a free cash flowing company early on, which, you know, put us in a unique position. Um, than some of our other competitors who are utilizing that kind of tool to to build out their facilities. I understand it, but we were we were uniquely positioned to avoid those, and and we're just going to continue to do so.
0: Yeah, that's a sign of a thriving business. Is if you can hold on to those hard assets for for the rainy day or or not, never at all. Like that's uh, yeah, it's a sign that the company's doing well. So. Sam, Chris, thank you both for coming on the show. We've really enjoyed this. Thanks for having us. So did um, I. Thanks, Phil. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances.